Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, give me a call or visit bullrealty.com. Well, today we're going to talk about the office market, and uh, I think everyone's a little curious because we've been so long in this cycle. Uh, we've got rising construction costs, we have changes going on in the office market, we have uh, some trouble with co-working. So what's going on in the office market? We'll talk about it today. Please welcome my first guest. It's Michael Rossell. He's Director of U.S. Office Analytics with CoStar, and he's joining us on Zoom. Michael, thank you for being with us, sir. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. And uh, it was another terrific year in the U.S. office market, so I'm excited to uh, speak with you about it. Yeah, and that, that's good to hear. So tell us about it. When you look at the U.S. office market overall, uh, is it performing well? Some people in the press would think would lead you to think that the office market's uh, not doing well. Yeah, despite uh, some of those stories that, that may be uh, generated for clickbait, uh, I think uh, the real story is that the office market continues to perform well. And uh, you know, I won't bury the lead here. Uh, it was a strong year in 2019 in terms of absorption, in terms of leasing activity, in terms of rental rate growth, as well as on the investment side. Um, so really a positive year. And, uh, and I think it really all begins, you can't talk about the office market without touching on the economy at least. Um, and I think uh, it's fair to say that many of the economic pundits uh, were certainly forced to move their predictions of the US recession in 2019. Uh, forward to 2020 and beyond. Uh, it was really a, a strong year in terms of job growth, uh, which translates into a, a positive tailwind um, for the office sector as well. You know, more than 2 million jobs are added in 2019. And I think when all is said and done, GDP growth should come in ending the year uh, right around 2%. Uh, so those were all positive, um, you know, factors in terms of, of helping the office market. You know, I will say if we want to look ahead, uh, the U.S. economy does appear to be poised for at least a soft landing, uh, probably not a sharp recession. Um, I think one could argue that the manufacturing sector is probably already in a recession, courtesy of tariffs and business uncertainty uh, surrounding trade policy. And I think despite longer term, uh, lower long term interest rates and reduced corporate taxes, we've definitely seen that CapEx has continued to slow. Uh, but I think the labor force continues to provide positive tailwinds to, to the economy in general. Uh, and I think we're starting to see the labor force participation rate of 25 to 54 year olds uh, increase a little bit. And that tells me there's still a lot of people on the sidelines that can re-enter uh, the job force if the job market continues to tighten. So those are all positive head, headwinds or tailwinds, I should say, uh, when we look at the economy and how it impacts the office market. And what about uh, rental rates, uh, Michael? Did you uh, see uh, some growth there across the country? Yeah, we, we really have, um, you know, rent growth uh, did decelerate a bit towards year end. I think earlier in the year, we were seeing 3% plus uh, rent growth across the country, and it decelerated closer to, uh, to 2% by year end. Uh, however, that did continue the longest stretch of consecutive positive rent growth on record. Oh. Uh, so even though the pace of growth uh, slowed down, uh, it's still been an unbelievable run, uh, and particularly for, uh, for landlords uh, in terms of rent growth. Um, you know, and I think really, obviously, there were some winners and losers in terms of rent growth. 
uh, primarily Sunbelt and tech markets posted the strongest uh, growth over the past year. I think markets like Charlotte, Jacksonville, Austin, Seattle, San Francisco, all ranked among the leaders in terms of rent growth. Uh, and even Philadelphia, which uh, is decidedly not a Sunbelt uh, market, uh, vacancies in Philly have been uh, near 20-year lows, and that's been driving a lot of the rent growth there. You know, conversely, I think you know New York and Washington D.C. Uh, continue to rank among the weakest rent growth uh, markets, and I think a lot of that has to do with the supply and the pipeline in those particular markets. Uh, New York and D.C., for example, have combined 37 million square feet of supply in the pipeline, so landlords may be a little bit hesitant there to aggressively boost rents. And what has that done to uh, the U.S. Uh, vacancy uh, rate across the country for office? Yeah, well, as I alluded to at the top, uh, it was a strong year in terms of net absorption, uh, and that really helped uh, supply roughly matched absorption, and that uh, kept our vacancy rate right at around 9.7% at year-end 2019, and that matches an expansion error low. Uh, so it's, it really has been uh, a continual steady decline in the vacancy rate uh, we've seen over the past decade. Uh, and absorption has a lot to do with that. And looking ahead into 2020, 2021, or at least the first half of 2020, uh, the leasing activity that we've recorded uh, definitely bodes well for absorption uh, through at least the first half of 2020. So it was a very strong year in 2019 in terms of leasing. And that should translate into uh, strong positive absorption through 2020. So I don't see the vacancy rate uh, changing any time in, in the next year or so. Uh, dramatically uh, upward. Well, that's good news. And you, know, you mentioned New York and D.C. is having a good bit of new supply. But when you look at new supply levels, Michael, across the country, um, mm -hmm. how does it compare to, you know, historically, it seems like there's less office uh, really being built these days. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think we're still playing uh, catch up to to a large degree around the country. And even in the most active markets around the country, uh, Austin and Nashville, for example, uh, the new supply there is still less than 8% of total stock. Uh, even in a market like New York, uh, which is seeing close to 20, has close to 25 million square feet of space under construction, uh, that really only represents about 2% of total supply just due to the sheer size of the market there. Um, so, um, you know, it, it really is a mixed bag uh, in terms of construction. I think the areas of the country that have uh, seen the best population and job growth have seen and will likely continue to see the most supply. Um, San Francisco, for one, has about 7 million square feet underway. And again, that counts for less than 4% of total supply. And unfortunately, I think in a market like San Francisco, I don't think that 7 million square feet is really going to do a lot to help out tenants who are looking for space. Uh, it's been a, a unique phenomenon in San Francisco where several major tenants, including Salesforce and Pinterest, have actually pre-leased space in buildings prior to those buildings receiving development approval. Mm. So the appetite for space among tech firms growing and expanding in, in the Bay Area just continues to be insatiable. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a little bit of a shakeup in the co-working world. Uh, from your desk, uh, what do you see? What's the impact there? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it's hard to uh, talk about the office market in 2019 without mentioning uh, WeWork, certainly, and co-working in general. Uh, I would think it's safe to say that uh, one tenant that probably won't be taking more space in 2020 is WeWork. Uh, they signed for about 8 million square feet in 2019, 
Um, and I, I don't see that happening again. Uh, I think they have a lot of commitments underway. It wouldn't be a huge surprise to say that, you know, maybe they won't uh, uh, fulfill all of those commitments uh, when all is said and done. Uh, but the, the positive news is uh, it, it's really more of an isolated effect. It's not really going to impact the U.S. market as a whole uh, in an overly negative manner. You know, outside of a couple of markets, New York, maybe Seattle, San Francisco, that have a higher exposure to WeWork, uh, they'll feel it a little more. Uh, but even in those markets, we're talking you know, less than uh, less than 10 percent of, uh, of the total space in the market is, is occupied by co-working firms. So uh, it's more of a localized impact uh, to landlords that may have particularly high exposure to co-working firms and particularly we work that may feel it rather than a ripple effect throughout the entire U.S. office market. OK. We talk with Michael Rosal. He is director of U.S. office analytics with CoStar. And Michael um, when you look at the market overall and you look at the performance uh, rates and occupancy, and, and uh, do you see anything different between the A-class properties and, and kind of the rest of the market? Yeah, absolutely. I would say uh, the unique phenomenon in the last couple of years is that virtually all of the demand uh, throughout the country has been in those four- and five-star Class A properties. That really accounts for the overwhelming bulk um, of absorption throughout the country. And that's something that's uh, definitely been a major shift throughout uh, this expansion. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, what's driving that uh, is the ultra-tight labor market throughout the country. And we've heard it time and time again, but it rings true still. Uh, there is a premium on recruiting and retaining top talent. Uh, and a sub-4% unemployment rate, uh, it's imperative that you hold on to the talent you have. And if you want to expand your company, you need to offer something uh, that the, that the uh, firm next door doesn't. So having uh, that uh, trophy quality type space in a building that's just chock full of amenities, the latest amenities, has become really important for these firms. Uh, and, and especially over the last few years, uh, a firm space uh, and branding has been uh, interrelated. So kind of how they want to brand themselves, not only to their employees, but to the public, has become more intricately tied into the space that they occupy. So it's very important for firms, um, and particularly large firms. Um, at the end of the day, uh, real estate is one of the smaller expenses for large firms. Uh, the overwhelming majority uh, of the expense comes from uh, their employees' salaries. Uh, so at the end of the day, space is relatively cheap, uh, and people are very expensive. Uh, so I think having that top quality space has become paramount. Yeah, I want to give you an amen on that. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think office users have, have figured it out that uh, their space can be a real attribute um, to their business, especially when it comes to recruiting and retention. Well, Michael, when you look ahead uh, at the office market moving forward, what about this this Class B or these what two and three? Uh, star type of, of properties, as you guys uh, call them, uh, as rents rise and can, have continued to rise uh, across the country, are there some opportunities in these uh, B properties, if you will, or are there any uh, opportunities maybe in some of these closer in suburban? What do you see as opportunities out there? Yeah, I think definitely there's uh, there are opportunities. Uh, if you look carefully, uh, I think some of those older Class B, uh, you know, three-star suburban properties uh, can be repositioned. Uh, I think if you're in a well-located suburban area, almost more of an ex-urban feel where it has some sort of live-work-play environment, 
and some sort of retail amenities for your employees. Uh, I think if, if you were well capitalized and could add um, some amenities, uh, certainly not to the level that we see in, uh, in downtown Trophy Towers, but uh, if you could upgrade the amenities that you have, renovate the space, bring in more natural light, um, uh, you know, I, I think there are opportunities there. Uh, for really uh, deep suburban assets uh, that don't have great connectivity to, uh, to major freeways or public transportation, uh, you know, those 1980s vintage uh, deep suburban assets, uh, you know, I don't know if the highest and best use any longer for those is, is remaining uh, office stock. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a good point. Uh, some of those properties may be hard to get to. It'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how those uh, perform moving forward. Well, we're going to take a short break and when we get back, I want to ask Michael about the investment market, about cap rates and, uh, and values moving forward. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. The segment's brought to you by the DNA of CRE. Now, if you're in brokerage in any way, check out, just Google this, DNA of CRE. You'll like seeing it. All right, we're talking about the office market today. Uh, my guest is Michael Russell. He's director of U.S. Office Analytics with CoStar, and he's with us on Zoom. And, and Michael, I want to see, as, as 2019 ended, uh, what were the trends you saw on uh, uh, cap rates? Were they, they were fairly flat? What, what, what did you see? Yeah, I think um, in terms of 2019 and, uh, and really the last couple of years, uh, cap rates were, were, were mostly flat, uh, I would say in the low 6% range. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking ahead, uh, we really uh, only see a mild expansion in cap rates, maybe 10 basis points over our forecast through 2024. And, and that's based on the anticipation that yields will, uh, will generally edge a little bit higher. So uh, not a tremendous amount of movement. Uh, and cap rates, and, and historically, uh, you know, that low 6% range is, uh, is very good. It's very low. So I think uh, we've been in a good place uh, for the last couple of years. Yeah, and that's overall, I guess, of all the sales, the all classes? But yes, that's correct. That's all classes. And, you know, of course, there's going to be uh, outliers. Uh, you know, your, your Class A trophy assets are going to trade lower. And, of course, your coastal gateway markets uh, you know, could see cap rates uh, at 4% or sub 4% uh, for some of those uh, those trophy towers and the CBDs. But uh, overall, the U.S. is, uh, is at just over 6%. Yeah. And when you guys look at the repeat sales of properties that are reselling, I know I've seen you guys report on that some, um, and you look at the office sector in that way, you know, what, what do you see there? What's the tale of, of, of these resales? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's an amazing story. Um, you know, uh, it could be two or a two or three year hold, uh, and there's a significant premium on on these uh, on these retrades. Uh, it, it's amazing, I think, across the board, not only on repeat sales, but um, you know, really the investment climate has been terrific in 2019. And you know, as I look back, I, I thought to myself, you know, if investors were concerned at all. 
about the weakening outlook for office demand or job or rent growth moving forward, the possibility of a recession that looms. Uh, it really isn't showing in terms of investment activity. Um, you know, looking back in 2019, you know, deal volume is probably going to approach $150 billion when all is said and done. Uh, and in fact, that would be the highest total since 2007. Hmm. Uh, and if you recall back then, uh, that was when the Blackstone Equity Office Properties deal uh, added about $39 billion to that total. So if you put it in perspective, uh, this has been uh, one of the most incredible years on record in terms of office investment. So uh, investors are certainly continue to be very bullish on this sector, despite all the uh, um, attention uh, that the multifamily market has gotten. Uh, office uh, still continues to attract a lot of capital. Yeah, is is there a potential in 2020 for that type of volume again? You would think. I think it's possible. Um, you know, I think uh, foreign investors, particularly, still favor U.S. office assets, even with the rising prices that we've seen uh, during this expansion. You know, if you look around the world, many other countries are, are still in a negative interest rate environment. So the U.S. offers growth and stability that really can't be found uh, anywhere else. So I think it's very attractive not only to uh, domestic buyers, but foreign capital looking for a home uh, has their eye firmly planted on the U.S. And I think that's going to continue. Yeah. And when you're talking to investors who invest in all types of asset uh, classes and property types uh, across the U.S., and they're looking at multifamily, industrial, retail, and, and these types, when they talk to you about office, uh, what is there something that excites them about it, or is there something that particularly makes some of them nervous? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's fairly simple. Uh, people are always going to need a place to work. People always need uh, office space to, uh, to go to. I think, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, uh, there was a doomsday scenario where everybody was going to be working from home. Uh, and really, that didn't pan out. Uh, in fact, over the last couple of years, several major firms have announced that they were completely ending uh, that work from home arrangement, that they wanted people in the office to have that face-to-face -face time to collaborate. And, uh, and I think we're seeing more and more of that in, uh, in office design and, and what tenants are looking for. They want that collaborative space. Um, you know, maybe the pendulum started to swing a little too far in terms of completely open uh, office arrangements where it became a distraction. And, uh, and I think now we've, we've probably moved into a, to a happy medium where there is that open collaborative space. And there are some areas throughout the office, uh, some huddle rooms where you do need a little bit of privacy or, or some quiet to work that, that you have that ability. But, you know, I think tenants uh, are really realizing that, you know, that in-office collaboration and just interaction with your colleagues can't be replicated even by, you know, video chats or phones. So yeah. uh, I think uh, I think there's going to be continued demand. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that uh, the, the cap rates in 2019 were roughly around the low 6% range. And, you know, you have foreign investors that are still uh, really bullish on, uh, I can say bullish with a nice thing, bull, right? There's <laughs> <laughs> really bullish on, on the U.S. office market. So what does that tell you for cap rates uh, and valuations moving forward in the office market? It seems like some people are concerned we're at the, uh, the uh, end of a great cycle. Uh, what would you assume that cap rates might do in uh, moving forward? Yeah, again, I think largely... Uh, we're going to see a continuation of where where we have been uh, bouncing around that low six percent range, and uh, 
I think um, looking over the forecast over the next four or five years, you know, I think we'll see a mild increase in cap rates. As I mentioned, I, I don't think it's going to uh, be more than, than about 10 basis points over the next few years. Uh, but I do think that the mild increase in cap rates will combine with uh, slightly slower rent growth and slower demand uh, to produce slower price gains of, uh, of roughly 1% to 2% a year in terms of office asset pricing. Okay. So I think we're still going to be in positive territory. It's still a, it's still a good story, uh, but uh, I think the gains are just going to be a little more muted than, uh, than we've seen over the past several years. Okay. Uh, Michael, where are some opportunities for office investors? Are there certain property types or, or locations geographically or, or maybe um, uh, suburban? Uh, you know, where might be some opportunities for investors? Yeah, I think it's really a story uh, of those areas of the country uh, that are uh, heavily, uh, have heavy exposure to the tech industry mm-hmm. or markets that are demographically outperforming in terms of job growth. Uh, and in migration. Uh, so areas uh, like Charlotte, Jacksonville, Tampa, Raleigh, Seattle, uh, Seattle, uh, particularly San Francisco. I think those are the areas that are seeing the greatest growth uh, and really uh, have the strongest rent growth. And despite the deceleration in rent growth that I mentioned over the next few years, uh, those are also the areas that are uh, probably not coincidentally forecasted to outperform uh, the U.S. as a whole in terms of rent growth, and I think uh, you know that in turn will boost asset values going forward. Uh, you know, CBD towers there. Um, the name of the game across the country continues to be uh, CBDs. Uh, certainly, that's where people want to live. That's where people want to work. Uh, particularly millennials and the uh, generation behind them, Generation Z. Uh, I think employers are already looking towards that uh, as millennials are getting older. Um, where does that Generation Z, where are they going to want to work? Where do they want to commute to? Uh, where do they want to live? And I think that still favors uh, major cities uh, within those markets. But, uh, um, you know, the job growth and domestic migration is going to continue to be uh, sunbelt and, and tech heavy. Okay. And Michael, what would you leave our audience with uh, related to the office sector uh, today? You know, I think uh, I'll wrap up where I began. Uh, 2019, despite all of the concern, uh, despite all of the uh, pundits declaring, uh, you know, there may be a recession and it may be a, a down year for the office market, uh, it has continued its incredible run during this expansion, and I don't see that ending in 2020. Again, absorption remained very strong. Looking at the leasing activity that we track in 2019. Uh, that's going to translate into strong absorption through 2020. Uh, rent growth, while uh, decelerating, the pace of growth will decelerate, will continue to be positive. So I don't see any really sharp um, negative risks on the horizon. I don't see rent growth turning negative. I don't see demand turning negative. Uh, things may slow down a little bit, uh, but I think we're going to continue to uh, to see this, this really terrific run that the office sector has been on. Well, well that's awesome. I know you made a a lot of listeners happy, including me as an office broker. I sell office buildings, so I'm glad to hear that. And Michael, great information. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Michael. All right. If you like more information uh, from Michael Ratzel and the, and the good folks at CoStar, uh, visit their website. It's CoStar.com. Uh, well, stay with us. We're going to have more on the office market. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. 
Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Check it out. It's the ultimate in training for commercial real estate agents. Well, today we're talking about the office market, and you've heard about the market, the forecasts and expectations. Another thing we like to do on the show is talk to people who are in, in the middle of it, who are doing it. Please welcome my next guest. It's Chris Rising. He's co-founder and CEO of Rising Realty Partners, and he's joining us on the phone. Chris, thanks for joining us, sir. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, Chris, you guys own uh, large office buildings. You own buildings in uh, Denver. You own them in, in Los Angeles. And uh, I, I kind of want to get your, your look at the office market in general today. When, you're, when you guys are talking to, to tenants, um, what's the feeling you get from them? Are they a little concerned about the cycle? Are they a little concerned about 2020 being election year? You know, what's the general feel you're getting out there today? Well, you know, I think it's a, it's a good question. So we, we really cover nine markets overall. Five of those are in California, and there's the major markets in California, from San Francisco in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, L.A., Orange County, and San Diego. And as you mentioned, we do own in Denver and Salt Lake and Portland and Seattle. So our focus is really the western U.S., the western tenants. They tend to be uh, more tech companies, more entertainment companies, um, companies that – are really leading the way in these markets for leasing space. So on a day-to-day -day basis with the 5 million square feet that we own and then the fact that we have boots on the ground in the markets I just described, I would say that um, uh, in relation to like 2016 or 17, when we really saw people slowing down, worried about a re recession, we're seeing more activity. We're seeing more tours, and we're seeing people um, – uh, making deals early if they have renewals. But I think the number one thing that has um, surprised our team and surprised our underwriting is that people are doing much more with less. We kind of thought coming out of 2013, uh, 2012, 2013, that the law firms had all downsized enough and people were going to stay that size. But what surprised us is we're not seeing – large users of space outside of one market, which would be West L.A., um, uh, out there. What we're seeing, what we used to see, a, a law firm being 300,000 square feet, they went to 150. We kind of thought that that's, where, that's kind of the law firm, national, international law firm size. It's now more like 75 to 100. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that changes your analysis, uh, especially on renewals. And we have a couple big renewals in downtown Los Angeles, uh, we're the second largest landlord behind Brookfield here, and some big-name firms who are getting smaller. So um, I think that has a lot to do with technology. I think it has a lot to do with the idea that um, lawyers, the reality is they can do a lot more from home because uh, you don't need a law library. And I think that's been uh, one big change. Um, and then uh, you know, I can go a little bit further if you want to be a little more market-specific about Los Angeles. Um, something that none of us foresaw was there's a new uh, type of tenant. Uh, new, it's called a techtainment tenant. 
Now, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of it in Atlanta, but I know that there's a strong um, uh, movie business that is uh, in and around Atlanta. But, Michael, have you heard of the term techtainment? I had not. <laughs> well, this is a, a, a term that I'll give the credit to uh, Victor Coleman of uh, the REIT Hudson Pacific who coined it. But if you think about traditionally how content was produced for television and for, uh, and for movies, they were really the larger studios that had big lots. So you think Disney, you think Warner Brothers, um, Paramount, and Sony. And they all had sound stages on their lots, and they had office space there. Well, today, uh, we have this new group, these people out of the Sil Silicon Valley, Hulu. Well, actually, Hulu was uh, uh, a response created by these big studios to Netflix. But you have Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime. And now all these streaming services that channel that, that that are out there, and these people need space. They don't have lots to put um, to to house their uh, their streaming services, and and so we're seeing in Los Angeles this explosion that has filled up the entire West Side, um, and they're the only ones that are kind of large users of space, 300,000 square feet. But it's really changed the dynamic in Southern California in that markets that were traditionally slower, like Hollywood, has become a 3% uh, vacancy market. And now they're pushing into Los Angeles. Warner Music uh, uh, is, is an example of somebody who's moved out of traditional kind of the Valley, Burbank, uh, and has moved to downtown Los Angeles. So to me, that's the biggest change I've seen in my career, really, uh, here in Southern California and I think you're going to see it across the country. Um, uh, at least any market that that pursues the film business, I think you're going to see these techtainment uh, tenants needing space around sound stages, like in Atlanta or in Vancouver and Toronto, and then uh, you know some other parts of the Southeast have also put together tax packages to try to attract movies being filmed. I think you're going to see these techtainment tenants needing to have a put, footprint as well. Techtainment. It sounds like a Pretty safe uh, sector, if you will, too, because even in a recession, we still want our we still want our movies and our entertainment. Um, that, that is true. Yeah. Well, Chris, I want to ask you about your feelings about co-working uh, today, uh, especially after what's happened with uh, WeWork, and uh, you know, how did you think about it before? Where, where are you on co-working today and its impact? Um, well, here's the first thing I'll say. I say I say WeWorking has been around for many, many decades. And uh, I think people know Regis, which goes now more by the brand, brand name in the States uh, um, of Spaces. And I will tell you, I, I, when I first uh, started listening to people talk about co-working around 2012, I happened to go to several BizNow Escape conferences. And I met Adam Newman, had some one-on-one -on -one time with him, and um, I didn't get it at all. I didn't understand this higher consciousness was somehow going to make up for something um, that is just a reality. Look, it's, it's an arbitrage. Long-term lease, go resell it as a short-term. And, you know, there's examples in the hotel business. Clearly, every night they're, they have to rent their space. So one could argue um, that, that, that that business is something that's real. And I think, um, but here's where I, what I didn't understand, is I didn't understand how you could Go lease 100,000 feet, put up a $10 million letter of credit that you never see that sits with the landlord. 
spend $200 a square foot to build space out and then expect that you could continually get keep those desks leased. And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk early on about the JOBS Act creating this new freedom because that also there was the Health Care Act so that now uh, everybody could get cheaper health care. And so there was all this idea that the whole economy was going to become the gig economy. 30% of the economy is going to be gig economy, gig economy, where I didn't really work for an employer, but I could make a really good living doing one gig at a time. And I, I never bought it. Now, I have to say, I did invest in a in a uh, co-working business here in Southern California called uh, Cross Campus, and my feeling was they were doing it a little bit differently than we work. Um, they had the hot desk dis- business, but they were really into events and I could see that, and what I've learned from that is if you really run a site well and you have great management and you keep your costs under control, you can make a profit. But the thing is, it's more of a real estate profit, right? It's not a tech profit. And so as I was listening to Adam as he grew from 2012 till, I would say, March, there were times I will tell you that I was really had a lot of self-doubt. I mean, and I... I started to become a little bit of the person I I don't like when you're cynical about everything, but I just, it didn't make sense to me. And then I had two things happen where I said, where it really came clear to me this wasn't going to work. One, I went to JP Morgan uh, in New York and was talking about raising money and doing things. And I was told that JP Morgan was bidding on a deal in Atlanta, by the way, in Atlanta uh, for leasing their facilities person. They were going to, they were going to do a 10 year lease. With a with a developer in um, in Atlanta, and that they had just made the decision to uh, not do a ten year lease, but WeWork would do the ten year lease, and then J P Morgan would do a three year with a two year more option, uh, because they didn't know how they were going to grow. And I, and I went, oh my God, what? okay, here's what's happening: is WeWork is putting up these LCs and they're doing it, and they're giving the credit tenant the ability to do short-term leases because they don't know how they're going to grow and you just go that's that's not sustainable yeah. and the landlord i i, I heard jp morgan because who i was talking to was on the uh equity side investing in office buildings was going uh this is ridiculous you know <laughs> we're, we're trading that credit so that 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 was one story and then the other story that i will tell you was that a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine who's a developer here in, in Los Angeles, had a meeting with Adam Newman uh, in New York to talk about doing a lease deal. And uh, he goes in for the meeting, and, and Adam Newman is late. He's not there. Uh, he sits in his office for about 20 minutes. The guy comes in in a full sweat from having just done a workout and starts to talk to Jeff and berate him how as a um, – as a landlord, he was old. Even he's not. He's not, he's, he's not even fifty, and uh, I didn't know what he was talking about. As he had an assistant feed him his acibol. Gee. Gee. <laughs> this is the guy who's in charge of twelve billion. Uh, so I think um, I, I think it all came to roost. Now I have to tell you, we do have we work in a project. I think the business fits well. Should they be the largest lessee of space in New York City and Denver and and some of these other cities? Probably not. And I think trees don't grow to the sky, and and they're gonna. That's all gonna get right sized. I do think there's a place for co-working. For me, you have a million square foot office building. You have a couple 
floors on a lower floor. You want to make sure you have activity in your building. Um, the hot desk or the event space makes a lot of sense. But, uh, you know, lenders today are very clear. If you want to do a loan on a major office building and we work or any co-working is more than 20% of your building, you're probably not going to get a loan. You're just not going to get the interest rate you want. And that's pretty clear across the board talking to, to the debt community. I yeah. don't know if you've heard similar to that. Yeah, I have. And, and uh, you know, I, I lead a group that sells office buildings here. And, and we've heard that a lot. A lot of landlords and, and lenders and equity is concerned if, if it's too big of a tenant. But, but I like what you're saying. And, and tell us a little bit more about that. So that you, you feel that having some co-working in a building is really an amenity? Here, here's the reality, I think, uh, of the office markets. I don't, not any major market that has millennials. And so, like in Atlanta, clearly a, a desirable market for millennials. You know, there's a lot of great universities in the southeast, and Atlanta is a, is a wonderful metropolitan area. Um, it's a different kind of tenant than the, the a worker than the baby boomer workers. And um, there's a lot more communication about quality of life and what, where you want to spend your time within that generation than, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm kind of like right in between. So I started doing everything I was supposed to do that somebody told me to do. And then as I've gotten older, I feel a little bit more free to act more like millennial. But here's the bottom line. There is an amenity war going on in all of these office buildings. Mm -hmm. um, there are there are tenants. You, you need more tenants in your building to fill them because they're getting smaller, but they but their credit quality and you want to attract people. And the way you attract people is you can no longer, in my opinion, have office buildings. I equate it to that old Seinfeld episode when people would get in that apartment building and get in the elevator and nobody would talk with, it, with anybody. And Kramer took it upon himself to try to introduce everybody to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so you got to create a community. And part of the way you create a community is you have some co-working space. Um, and I think it's it's like saying, hey, I'm going to make a good choice on a coffee shop or a, you know, uh, a restaurant or some other sort of retail experience. I think there's a there always has been a role for co-working, and I think you're going to see the way buildings go. I think the future is that you're going to have some co-working and some floors. You're going to work with your lender to have two or three floors that you build out that's, you know, very nice and kind of maybe WeWork-S in its, in its interior architecture. But that those two or three floors could do small, uh, shorter-term deals, and then the rest you're going to have to do the kind of deals that, that we've had to do traditionally to allow to do big TI packages. Um, I mean, the fact is that a larger tenant, if you if you are a 25,000 square foot tenant or, or more, you're going to want to build out your space to reflect your culture, and because culture is so big and attracting people. Um, and so I, I think I think we started with the question being is co-working still going to be around a part of it i think absolutely and i think the best office buildings will have that um and it'll be because you're trying to create the sense of community in an office building the sense of okay i want to spend time here because otherwise a lot of people can get work done on their iphone sitting anywhere so you know as a company if you want to have a company culture and teamwork you've got to create these places and i think as a landlord if you want to get those tenants you've got to do that and co-working is a piece of that that makes sense. And we're talking with Chris Rising with Rising Realty Partners to own office buildings. And, and Chris, when it comes to co-working, um, I had a, a client of ours that owns several office buildings call me one day and asked me if he should lease to these co-working companies 
or if he, maybe he should operate these co-working spaces himself. And I told him, no, don't, don't do them yourself. It's a business. There's a lot going on there. Definitely uh, lease to these co-working companies. Well, he immediately did them himself, uh, opposite of what I had told him. <laughs> and he did it himself. What do you think the future is there, Chris? Uh, uh, are you guys interested in, in, in running some of these yourselves in your buildings, or you kind of leave it to these, these, these companies, these tenants? You know, it's, it's a good question. I think, number one, you have you know, there's really two kind of owners of office buildings, right? There's the passive core investor, um, you know, the big insurance companies who say, look, I've got to hire a CB, a JLL, a, um, a CNW to manage the building because that's just not what we do. There's not enough room in the deal to bring an operator in. And I think for that kind of owner, I can see a CB. They've already started their own co-working property management group. But I could see a WeWork or, or um, a Convene that Brookfield's a big backer of. Um, I could see those coming into the services firms or into a, a national landlord. They get acquired, and that's how they do it. I also think, just like the boutique hotel market, there's going to be operators like ourselves who feel we can do it um, and, and make it unique to the building um, I think the one thing that WeWork was pushing hard was like this global membership. And, you know, if you buy that, you can go to anywhere. Uh, yeah, if, if Nike is going to buy one for their employees, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But the reality is, is that most people don't spend Monday in Austin, Texas, Tuesday in New York, and Wednesday in London, you know. Right. So it, it, that's not how it works. And I, so I, I think that global membership was really a, a kind of a farce, and um, so I don't see the need for that. I, um, I think what you're more likely to see is this bifurcation between the services firms creating it, the larger landlords buying an existing, and then this, and the boutique landlords like ourselves really saying, hey, we, we're going to integrate it into the experience of the building, and we feel we can, with the software that's out there and all of that, um, we can we can operate two floors of hot desks. Yeah. You know the interesting thing. I don't know if you saw this, um, but WeWork bragged and bragged about their IT and their tech. And in fact, on Twitter, when I got into it, when I get into a little bit with some of the the, the WeWork evangelists, they would <laughs> talk about well, the IP is going to be what saves them. It's now come out that in 2012 they hired a 15 year old kid out of hadn't even graduated from high school to run their IT. Ooh. And the reality is their IT was a total mess. Whoa. And so uh, everything that they tried to do to try to tell the world, hey, we're not a real estate company. We're a tech company has proven to not really have worked out. So wow. um, that's great. Anyway, so it's a long winded way to say I think they're going to see boutique owners do it themselves. You're going to see the larger uh, REITs and the larger owners across the country either buy or create their platform so that it works with 10 office buildings or 15 office buildings. And then you're going to see CB, C, JLL, and C&W be able to offer that kind of brand. They'll come up with brands for it, and they'll be able to offer it as their overall property management services. Okay, good. Well, you know, I think a lot of people are in, interested in social impact investing. And we're going to take a short break. When we get back, I'm going to ask Chris Rising about just that. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? 
check out Michael Bold's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Today we're talking about the office market. My guest is Chris Rising. He's co-founder and CEO of Rising Realty Partners, and he's on the phone with us. And Chris, I think there's been a lot of interest out there uh, from investors and, and, the, and everyone about social impact investing, but uh, is it real? How, how do we do it? What are you guys doing in that regard? Well, I think it's very real, and in fact, we're betting our whole company on the fact that, that it's real. And let, let me just talk about it more broadly. I came to believing that carbon reduction and the health and wellness of a building and the, and the employees in it and the fact that the building should have some sort of impact in the immediate community, not from a philanthropic or altruistic point of view. I came to it because when we did our first project um, in 2012, I've been in the business a long time. I was at McGuire Reed, 33 million square feet, and before that I had my own company and worked for John Cushman for several years. So I've been around it a long time and came around real estate and came to the conclusion starting around 2012 that this was going to matter in a way it hadn't before. And it started really uh, in two or three ways that I'll explain. The first is that when I um, was a young broker and had the privilege of working uh, for John Cushman, literally carrying his briefcase all around the country and the world, I, and we did some of the biggest office leases and sold buildings. But on the office lease side, back in the late 90s, uh, which I think was very reflective of the 70s and 80s and most of the 90s, a big office lease transaction was very simple. John had the relationship through some national organization or some local organization. It was a white male CEO and John and I, we would put together these surveys and we'd go and we'd tour a market to find where we're going to put a 500,000 square foot requirement or 300,000 square foot requirement. And it was very simple. I mean, I could just tell you at the end of the day that requirement was going to go to one of three places. It was going to go near the CEO's home, <laughs> near the CEO's country club, or near the CEO's town club. That's yeah. what it was going to be. And um, and what I saw happen after the Great Recession was I, when I was at McGuire was this total change, this total change coming out of uh, 2010, 2012, where all of a sudden the decisions about real estate were being done by more of an HR committee. And it was more about how you attract talent. I think that mentality started in the Silicon Valley, but it really moved to the law firms and the accounting firms and the, and the major engineering firms because they recognized that real estate overall behind salaries were their two costs uh, that they really had to worry about. And if you wanted to get the best people, you had to create, uh, you had to have a headquarters that was attractive to people. And so what happened was that the HR committees that I saw happening became more people, more women involved, more people throughout the organization, not just the CEO, trying to create a place people wanted to be. So that, that's one thing that I thought was key. And 
uh, and really uh, was a game changer uh, for how office investment is done and leads us towards this social impact investing that we're so passionate about. The second was the use of technology and how technology, you know, it's been almost uh, 10 years, I think it was 2011 when Mark Andreessen said that software had eaten the world. <laughs> and what he meant by that was that um, you think about the jobs that we all first got in the business, whether it was one-to-one -one assistant to an executive or the fact that you had to have word processing departments in law firms. You know, all of those things have gone away, starting with Microsoft, but now going to our to our devices and, and all. And so you don't need to build out space like an industrial space anymore or like you're on a on a, uh, on a manufacturing line. You can create much more comfortable space, much more flexible space. So you put those things together, and now people are starting to talk about, well, what's the quality of life I have in my work? And for me, some of these examples really got highlighted. We bought Pack Mutual, which is our signature project in, in downtown Los Angeles. Where we were the first to really do creative office, but uh, it wasn't altruistic. What happened was, that we did these strategies. We bought a, 19, a building that was three buildings, 1906 building, a 1922 uh, building, and a 1927 building that were kind of an urban campus. And guess what? We had to go in and remove the lead paint and the asbestos to leave space. We had to go in and redo the HVAC. And as we were doing that, we were seeing our electric bills come way down. We were being able to do things. We had an exterior stairwell that had been put on in the 80s due to the fire code changes in L.A., and it was just brown stucco. And you looked down, and it was there was a, a very poor Domino's pizza that actually had bars on it when we bought it because people were afraid at night of getting robbed. And I'm like, you know, if we were to do something, we could create a little courtyard. We might get a better restaurant tenant. And we started looking, should we put a mural on that? And we said, well, no one's done a live green wall. Let's do that. I mean, this all of this was done to try to leave space. We created the courtyard. We got a great French bakery. It was unique. Um, and so we were doing these things with the total mindset of how do we leave space to this new generation. And I love to tell the story that we had a 10,000-square-foot tenant in a sublease. And it, the name of the company was Nasty Gal. And Nasty Gal was a company started by Sofia Amorosa, where she literally would go to um, – uh, thrift stores, put together great outfits, put them on eBay and sell them. And then she was one of the first to take all that to be an online product. And she was a 10,000 square foot tenant wanting to go to 60. And I go in to meet with her in 2012. I'm doing my old brokerage look and my, you know, raising money look. I'm in a dark suit, white shirt, red tie, and my little bling bling going, my little uh, kerchief in my pocket there. <laughs> and she looks at me and says, um, I'm sorry, I don't meet with white guys in dark suits. You look like you're the FBI. <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh, geez. And so I kind of got myself together and said, okay, can we meet tomorrow? And I come back in, jeans and a T-shirt. I credit her with why I don't wear suits to work anymore and all. But I come back in and I said, Sophia, I understand you want to go to 60,000 feet. And she goes, well, I'd love to stay in this historic building, but you don't have 60,000 feet. And I said, oh, I can put together 60. She was, how are you going to do it? And I showed her all the walls we were going to take out. And we found we found windows that had been hidden since the 40s and 50s. And I, I showed her how we could put together 60,000 feet. She said, well, okay, that's great. But, you know, I, I, really, I really can't be in a building when you tell me when to work. And I said, what do you mean tell me when to work? She goes, well, look at the lease you proposed. 
you tell me that I have I can work from eight to six. I said, what do you mean by that? She says, well, if I come before eight or after, we're here after six, you charge me two hundred fifty dollars an hour for air. You can't, you know, my people don't work those hours. They work from ten until in the morning until nine o'clock at night. And I'm like, oh wow, I got my engineers together and our team did. And, well, we put in a new HVAC system that had different zones. So I said, I can solve that for you. And she said, yeah, that's, that's important. So the other thing is, and she gave me this whole stack of papers on, uh, on health and wellness. It was all her saying, I've read that, you want, that, that to have a healthier culture, we should be able to bring dogs to work. And nobody in downtown LA lets you do that. And I said, wow, okay, let me look at that one. <laughs> and <laughs> we figured out this way that we could, we came up with these dog licenses we called it the one yip rule. If you brought your dog and, and it yipped at somebody and scared somebody, you couldn't bring it back. We said, well, how are we going to put this together? You know, how are we going to get everybody who wants to bring a dog? And we started doing a once-a-year uh, dog day, bring your dog to work day. And we got some sponsors, and we created this whole community. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, there's something to this, too. And so, uh, so most of our buildings, not all of our buildings, allow dogs to work. But more so than once we started communicating with our tenants about their love of dogs, we found out that some people were really interested. And we had a, a, we were talking to a tenant who really was interested in diabetes. And we said, well, if we can get everybody for dog, dog together, maybe we could raise some money through the building. And so as we were doing this stuff, we recognized we were lowering the, car, lowering the carbon footprint, and we could, track, we could track that. We recognized that we wanted to be a lead plat, the oldest building, privately owned building in the United States to get lead platinum. And to get lead platinum, we got to spend, you know, gold is one thing, but to get the platinum, you really have to alter behaviors for your tenants. And so we would go in and talk to our tenants, and do you really know how many people are driving into work or taking public transportation? And I'll tell you, almost 100%, anybody in the C-suite had no idea. They just assumed everybody drove their car to work and everybody needed a parking space. And we would find, no, that's not the case. A lot of people take public transportation. And we, were, we would talk to him about, you know, do you really need to bring plastic water bottles in? Look how bad that is for the environment. Can you, can you have a water purifier and, and use glass? And, and, and so we got the, the oldest building in the United States to be lead platinum. And then we started raising this money, and that has now evolved to our strategy. And we really believe that, that impact creates alpha, that you can lower the building's operating expenses in a very, uh, in a very specific way and, it's, and, and make a building more efficient. And you can track that. You can track how much carbon's been reduced. You can track um, when we go through. We can track the quality of the air, the light, the water. I mean, I, I joke a lot, but I but I'm kind of serious. I, you know, an office building shouldn't kill you. They shouldn't have a, a building shouldn't have asbestos and lead paint encapsulated. Mm-hmm. Um, what it should be is removed. And um, and so what what we do now with our investors is that we provide not only to our investors what our IRR is and what our multiple. Uh, on invested capital is. But we have partnered with a group called IX Investments. It was founded by a gentleman named um, uh, Trevor Nielsen, who uh, worked in the Clinton White House and then uh, worked for the Gates Foundation, and Howard W. Buffett. And Howard is the grandson of Warren Buffett. How, When his grandfather gave $40 billion to the Gates Foundation, his grandfather asked Howard to go there and say, okay, tell me how this $40 billion is going to have an impact. I, I, I get it, I, that something's going to have a return, but what's the impact? And so Howard and Trevor got to know each other there. Howard then moved on, worked in the Obama administration, and Howard is a professor at Columbia in, uh, University in New York. 
He has written a book called Social Value Investing. And in that book, he has created a formula called an impact rate of return, lowercase i. And the whole concept of an impact rate of return is that an investor, they know the financial. So if you invest in a rising deal or a Blackstone deal that are both value-add, they're both in a CBD, they're roughly the same size buildings, hey, you can do a very quick comparison who did better. And by IRR and by uh, multiple. But how do you know if that dollar invested had a, a, an, a bigger impact? And that's what we do with the impact rate of return. When we show that we've redone the HVAC systems and brought the carbon footprint down by 35%, when we say we've improved the quality of the water, water by 15%, we've, um, uh, we, th this community of people in this building has, has raised uh, you know, $100,000 a year for four years uh, on whatever, whatever the community in that building wants uh, to get excited about. I mean, I've always believed you've got a building with 1,000 people. You can get 100 people who want to do something, and those 100 people can make that building a great place to be in. And so you know, we, we plan to continue to use these strategies. I think our, our historic IRRs and our multiple prove that these strategies work. And, you know, we've got a very ambitious program over the next three to four years of investing a couple hundred million dollars of equity in the nine markets we're in um, and employing these strategies and giving back to our investors uh, the report card. And uh, we have a whole scorecard that we created that we have a copyright around. And it's, it's all the things that when we go into a building, what we're, that the building is the day we buy it. And then Howard gives his uh, impact rate of return certification on the day we buy it, and then on an annual basis we audit it. And Howard gives what the IR lowercase IRR is, and then when we sell it, the investor gets a certif certificate of what the um, IRR is. So we think it creates. We, it, you come to our office, you see it all over. It says impact. Uh, impact creates alpha. Impact as alpha, um, and we believe that's where it's going. I think that's millennials care about this stuff. And uh, millennials are the largest work, uh, largest demographic in the workforce now. We um, things are changing radically. We have the first time in history we have five generations in the workforce. Um, we've got uh, so, uh, but millennials are the biggest voice, and Gen Zs are, are a lot more similar to millennials than millennials are to boomers. And we think these are, these are the strategies that are going to create value in our major CBDs. And um, we're we're really excited about it. And yeah. I think it's the future. Well, that's excellent. And I, I love that your tenant mentioned health and wellness issues in, in 2012. And this, this impact rate of return, Chris, how do you think it impacts your internal rate of return? And in some cases, I guess it, it's more costly, right? Well, you know, a lot of people, I, when I started doing this in 2012, 2014, and I'd go to certain markets, uh, Texas and Atlanta, and I'd talk, and <laughs> I would tell you, the, the general feeling back was people just assumed that this costs more, so this must be philanthropy. <laughs> I think what we've proven now, and I and I have to be really specific, so we do adaptive reuse. We take buildings that are you know, going back to the 20s, but really our strike zone is a building that was built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, where the infrastructure is aging and it needs to be updated. Um, and... You're going to have to do that anyway. And then the question is, what level do you do it? You know, I've had partners, private equity partners, who, when we start to talk about redoing everything, make, oh, no, no, you've got to, you've got to see how we can put these Band-Aids on it. We can do this. Mm -hmm. So you either have to believe that 
um, and we think we've proven up, that doing these major infrastructure changes is better than putting lipstick on it or putting Band-Aids on it, or you don't. And I think we've proven over and over again that when you do an adaptive reuse project and you do these things and you do it up front, your ROI on those come in, in a relatively short period of time, two, three, four years. Um, we have a project out in Calabasas, which is Kardashians and people like that. <laughs> That's really low, but it's the old countrywide headquarters. And we installed five bloom natural gas generators. And the return on that investment was two years in terms of how, nice. how much we lowered our electricity costs. Um, so I think you can prove these things up in a way, and I think people are a lot less skeptical, skeptical than they used to be. And I think there is a belief that prop tech is real, that, that, the, that we're seeing these exponential changes in how you own and operate buildings, but how you manage buildings through the BMS systems. Um, technology has made a huge change in that. Uh, I, I know when I first bought uh, buildings going back in 2003, um, you know, we would send engineers around a building <laughs> looking to make sure valves were closed. You know, right. it, it was that rudimentary. And today now we buy a building, we'll partner with someone like Carbon Lighthouse who will come in and put sensors throughout the whole building. So we'll no, no more sending engineers around looking at something's leaking. And, and these things make a real difference to the, difference to the efficiency of a building. And that's real, especially if you live in a market where there's a full-service gross rent. You know, anything you can do uh, to lower those operating expenses is more money in a landlord's pocket. And then a triple in that building, it, it uh, allows you to keep a base rate where your rent's higher, but the overall cost for a tenant isn't. So yeah. we think these are real. I like very it. Very real. I like it. I'm glad to hear you bring it up because it seems like I'm not hearing it enough. I think uh, the future is, is huge. And, and I like that you're, you're working on wellness certifications and, and fit well. How much are you hearing that from tenants, and, and how is that trend changing? You said you heard it back as soon as 2012. Are you hearing it more? I talked to some landlords, and they say, Michael, we know about wellness certification and fit well, but we're not hearing it that much. Well, you know, I, I, I'd say two things. If you own a major office building and you haven't read the Amazon HQ to RFP, you're doing yourself a disservice because all of the things we've talked about were in that RFP and what was expected. Um, so my view is if you want to get any tech company, if you want to get any tech team the company, and you, it's like this is the baseline. You won't even know because you won't get on the tour list if you don't do these things. Right. I think the second thing is, it's just part of the amenity wars that I see going on across the country. Um, it's, it's becoming less unique. You've got to have some sort of gym, some sort of shower, some sort of bike locker. You've got to have um, healthier food options. I mean, the fact is, um, you know, people don't want the, the fast foods in their buildings anymore. The tenants don't. And you've got to be conscious about creating this environment. Um, I think there are some people who think they can get by and uh, not do it. And, you know, I, I don't get it about the real estate business. There is such cynicism around some of this stuff. Um, and I just want to go, are you, do, do you go, some of the people who are my contemporaries and older, I'm like, do you ever go on a leasing tour with, you know, a major tech company or a major uh, law firm or accounting firm today and hear what people are talking about? Because if you do that enough, you go, geez, this is, this is real, and it's and it can be costly for people, uh, and a lot of people haven't underwritten it. You know, if you bought a building five years ago, 
I would think that, that this didn't hit people in the face yet. So yeah. I think a lot of people, they hear what they want to hear. Yeah. And I think the proof's in the pudding, which buildings are really leasing. And yeah. I know in Atlanta, uh, my friend Mark Toro has got a big project there. Um, you know, he and I talk about this. This is this is just what you have to do to get people to even, those major te uh, tenants to, to, to even come and look at your building. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, the, reality, the new world we live in. Well, I, I think it's great. I think it's a, it's also a great, as you mentioned, a way to value add a building and really kind of turn it around and make it uh, more uh, desirable, you know, by the tenants today. And I think uh, the uh, wellness certification is going to be something that's going to be on a lot more tenants' a checklist. Well, Chris, great information. I'd like to have you on a future show, especially to talk about uh, BMS and other things uh, that you guys are using. Appreciate uh, you being on the show and joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I, I really, it's been a wonderful experience and happy to come back. All right. Thank you. And thank you for joining us around the world, around the country. We appreciate uh, you watching, listening, and sharing. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, please connect with us on your favorite social media. And until next week, be sure that you always learn, laugh, and are a healthy person, right? <laughs> Get the wellness certification in your office space and watch and listen to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies, incredible training for commercial agents. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com.